Thanks to everyone this morning for taking part in our service. Special thanks to the band. Don't they sound great this morning? And uh, the song choices are just wonderful. In the light of what we are thinking about and about to consider from God's word. And as we come to do that, let's just pray. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful that we can come together and we can be here in this church and sing these freedom songs. We thank you that your love never fails. And as we come to consider now your word, we pray for your help because we are needy and we'll never leave that place of need. So God, uh, open our hearts, open our minds, and help us to receive your word this morning. And let it encourage and challenge us and uh, produce fruit, Lord, for your glory in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. John Stott has rightly said that worship is the highest and noblest activity by which man, by the grace of God, is capable. It's the highest and noblest activity by which man, by the grace of God, is capable. Well, when we talk about worship, let's for a moment think about what we mean. Well, in the scripture, the word worship is used to denote, to denote an overall way of life and a specific activity. So in Psalm 100, verse 2, we, we read, Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. So in Psalm 100, verse 2, the psalmist is speaking about a specific activity of praising God. And that's, I guess, the sense in which we normally use the word worship today. We could think about it this way. An object lesson might help us. So I've got my flashlight. So we could think about it like this. If I turn on the flashlight and I point it at the ceiling, we could think about worship as a one-way transaction. Us exalting God. But then when the prophet Jonah said, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land, in Jonah chapter 1 verse 9, he was speaking not just about a one-way transaction. He was speaking about his whole manner of life. My whole being. So think of it this way. If I have my flashlight, but I have a mirror, and I shine the flashlight into the mirror, I can reflect it. So when we think about worship, we're thinking about reflecting God's glory back to Him. When we engage in worship, we become mirrors of God's glory. So, worship is glorifying God by ascribing Him the honor and the adoration due to Him because, as we were reminded right at the beginning of our service, We've never seen anything like him. But worship is also glorifying God by reflecting his glory to others. 
It's a way of life, a manner of worship. And it's what Paul was driving at in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he implored us to present ourselves as, as living sacrifices, our reasonable act of worship, a total way of life, a spiritual act of worship. And these two concepts go together. To attempt to worship God in only the narrow sense of praising Him without also seeking to worship Him in our whole way of life is hypocrisy. They're both essential. But here's the thing, folks. Our lives aren't always easy, are they? But worship is always necessary. So it's one thing to worship God when life is good and things are going well. But how do we worship God when it gets really tough? When things are difficult? Worship is not a place to forget our circumstances. But worship is a place to bring them. Because when we bring them to worship, there we find their God-ordained context. So all this to say that we're going to look at four truths today that allowed Paul and Silas to worship God in a particularly tough situation. And your tough times might not be the same as Paul's, but these four truths don't change. And they'll all help us to become better mirrors to reflect God's goodness and glory. In all situations. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 16. And uh, if you have your, your Bible, um, use your order of service and, and track along if you like. If we could go to my computer, that would be great. Share some things with you as we look at this passage together. First of all, let's think about the context that we're in. Acts chapter 16 is kind of the backstory for what happens to the beginning of this little church in Philippi. Paul wrote letter, later his letter to the Philippians. And there was a strong relationship between Paul and the Philippian church. And I think of all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, the letter to Philippians has a much more personal feel to it. He speaks about his deep feelings of affection for these people. Where was Philippi? Philippi was the very first European church plant in AD 52. Today it's a ruin, but back then it was a strategic city in the ancient world. Where did it come from? Well, the name of the city came from the father of Alexander the Great, Philip II of Macedon, who fortified a settlement there to control the gold mines. And he made it a strategic military center, and the city grew. It had a brilliant geographical location. It was on the main road which divided two continents, Europe and Asia. And then the city became part of the Roman Empire in 168 BC. And the assassins of Julius Caesar, Brutus and Cassius, were defeated there by Mark Antony and Octavian, who later became the, the Emperor Augustus. And then not long afterwards, Philippi was awarded the highest possible honor by being made a Roman colony. 
And the privileges attached to that distinction were great. Citizens of Philippi became citizens of Rome. So that's why there's such great pride in their privileged position. They wore Roman clothes, spoke Roman language, observed Roman customs. And that pride is illustrated by the words of the charge that was laid against Paul and Silas in this passage when they first visited Philippi. These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So Paul and Silas find themselves here in Philippi, a strategic and important place. And they've gone down to the river and they've met some people and they met Lydia. And the Lord opened her heart to the gospel and then she opened her home to Paul and to Silas. And we have the beginnings of this little Philippian church. And then as we look at Acts chapter 16, let's just get a quick overview of what's happening here in these verses. Verses 16 to 18. Paul and Silas are on their way through the city to a prayer spot outside the city and they come across this slave girl. And this slave girl is possessed by an evil spirit allows her to be kind of the Philippian psychic hotline. And her owners are making lots of money off of her and uh, her ability. But the evil spirit can also sense that God is with Paul and Silas. So she calls out, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they're telling you the way of salvation. And this seems to continue over and over and over again. It's not clear why Paul didn't cast the demon out of her right away, but she continues to do this for days. Everywhere they go, this girl is behind them, and she's calling this out. And finally, Paul and Silas get annoyed by the whole thing. And Paul whips around and says to the spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And that spirit leaves. And she's set free. But verses 19 through 24, the slave owner isn't pleased. He's lost his source of income. And he has Paul and Silas dragged into the town square before the magistrates. They're stripped of their clothes. They're beaten with rods. And their time in Philippi has been going so well up until this point. They'd led people to Christ. They'd shared the gospel. They were staying with them. And they'd had this girl who could see the power of of God in them. And they cast out an evil spirit. And all of a sudden, they're being falsely accused and stripped and beaten in front of the whole town. And then they're thrown in jail. And as the day comes to a close, they find themselves beaten and bruised and stuck in a dungeon. And that would seem to me like a pretty good time to grumble and to complain and to whip out my Roman citizen ID card and get out of jail quite quickly. But that's not what Paul and Silas do. In verses 25 to 40 of Acts 16, they sat in their jail cell, worshipping God. And the question that comes to me as I look at this story, and it's an amazing story, is 
What's up with that? How could they do that? How could they do that? And how can we? How can we worship God when worship is under fire? When the going gets tough? Well, as I said, I think there are four big ideas that we should keep in mind that I think come out of this passage to help us do just that. The first is this. We can worship God at all times because God is worthy of praise. God is worthy of praise. In the midst of our problems, whatever they are, we always have a choice to make. We can stay focused on our problem or we can focus on God. And Paul and Silas in this passage, they focus on God. God hasn't changed, you see, even though their situation and their circumstances have. We've been singing it this morning in our worship. Hebrews 13 verse 8 declares it. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James chapter 1 verse 17 The Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. In a world that's confusing and in constant change, the scriptures tell us that we have something we can count on. Something which is an anchor point for us. Something which is reliable. God does not change. And that means he's worthy of praise yesterday when things seem to be going very well. And he's also worthy of praise today when things seem bad. You see, God's worth isn't attached to our circumstances. And I'm sure we've all had those days when we wake up and we look across at the clock and we see we're late. And it's just the beginning of a morning, an afternoon, a day when everything seems to go wrong, right? Maybe you've read the book. The terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. It's a children's book. When Alexander wakes up and it's just from that point forward, everything goes wrong for Alexander. And you might have had some of those days. Horrible, no good, very bad days. But listen, the truth is, our problems are often much worse than a bad morning. Sleeping in, being stuck in traffic, missing an appointment. Maybe we lose a job. Or that visit to the doctor for a routine checkup has unearthed a very serious problem. Or someone has abandoned us, walked out of our lives. We all have those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days that are truly horrific. Let me share about mine. Many of you will know this story. But just over a year ago, I was in Prague. I was there with uh, disciple makers from all over the world. We gathered together for a conference. It was an opportunity to see with many good and dear friends. And we were together for a few days. And that morning had started for me um, with a phone call from Val to tell me that my car, that before I'd left for this trip, had been, we'd let it into the garage to get 
it ready for the MOT, and the garage had phoned to say they'd discovered that the chassis in my car was cracked. It was the beginning of a very bad, horrible, no good day. Um, I wouldn't be driving that car anytime soon. But little did I know, in a few hours, I wouldn't be driving anything, anywhere, for any time soon. I just had lunch with a group of leaders, and I'd gone off to meet my friend Tumsa, who was here a few weeks ago, um, sharing mine with us. And I was crossing Charles Bridge, that you can see in this photo. If you look really, really closely, you'll see blue lights. You'll see an ambulance sitting on the bridge. And that ambulance was there for me. A friend from our group had taken this picture. He didn't know that the ambulance was there for me. When he took the picture, he just saw an ambulance on the bridge and thought, I don't see that very often. He snapped a shot. But it was my ambulance picking me up because I'd collapsed on the bridge. And I woke up in a hospital in a strange place. And it's been the beginning of a strange year for me with health issues that I've never had to deal with in my life before. Still trying to find out answers to what's going on in my body that I have no control over. Sometimes our horrible, no good days become very serious indeed. And the solution to that isn't a wimpy, easy faith that says, hey, you're ill or you're unemployed. Tell you what, let's just praise God. Let's just praise God. And if we praise God enough, maybe we can act like that illness isn't there or isn't real or that situation doesn't exist. Some of you might remember the worship song that was popular, um, Jesus, We Celebrate Your Victory. Do you remember that song? That had that line, In your presence, all our problems disappear. I could never sing that line. We never should sing that line because it's just not true. It's not biblical. Our problems are very real. When I was lying in that hospital bed, scared and on my own, my problems were very real. But I was very conscious of God's nearness. I was very conscious that my church, Fitzroy, was praying for me. I was very conscious of brothers and sisters around the world who were praying for me. But my problems were very real. And many of you here this morning, you know this is the case. You've lived it too. You've experienced it. Paul and Silas aren't saying, well, hey, let's not say the word dungeon. If we don't say the word dungeon, if we don't say the word stocks, then we won't be in them. We won't be in it. Let's just pretend we're at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Let's pretend we're living at large by the pool. Let's keep thinking about being out by the pool. Let's not act like we're at the bottom of the dungeon. They weren't doing any of that stuff. What were they doing? Well, they got their eyes focused on God rather than their problems. They start thinking about the worth of an awesome, glorious God who's still in power, who's loving, who's greater than they are, who's more wise than they are who's got infinite understanding, who's running the whole universe, who works 
all things according to his will, who searches out all things and knows all things, who's bigger than their circumstance. I believe Paul and Silas are looking at God first and saying, you know what? God is worthy today, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing. He's always worthy because God is always God. Our situation might be horrific, but it doesn't change the fact that God is still God. So we can worship God because God is worthy of praise all the time. The second big idea is this. We can worship God at all times because God is with us. God is with us. Well, what happens as Paul and Silas are worshiping in this dungeon, in their cell? Well, Acts 16 verse 26 tells us that suddenly there is a violent earthquake. There's a violent earthquake. Thankfully, thankfully it doesn't happen every Sunday we gather to worship here in Fitzroy. It happened at this time because God was doing something. But it also demonstrates for us that God was there. That God was in the midst of that circumstance with them. He was with Paul and Silas in the dungeon. And there's an important lesson, I think, an encouragement for all of us here, is that God's promise to us isn't that you'll never have trials, that you'll never have challenges, that you'll never have difficulties. His promise is you aren't alone. On the night that he was arrested and betrayed, Jesus spoke words to his friends, his disciples, and he knew the end was coming. So the words that Jesus speaks in those final hours, in those final moments, are incredibly important. And one of the words that he speaks to them is, in this world, you're going to have trouble. but I give you my peace. You're not alone. But sometimes it feels like we're alone, right? Isn't that true? Sometimes it feels like we've been stranded, that God has left us hanging. Have you ever felt that way? We've felt it from other people who've let us down. We've all felt that in one way or another. Someone's let you down. Someone's left you stranded. Someone has abandoned you. Someone's left you hanging. And the truth is that sometimes it feels like that with God also. That God is absent. It was my daughter Selah's birthday yesterday. She was six. She was partying all day. And one of the things she got for her birthday was... A bike. She asked for a skateboard. We gave her a bike. Uh, and a skateboard too, so it's going to be fun in our house. And uh, her bike's all kitted out. It's got the stabilizers there. So she can get on that little bike and she can ride it. But I know at one point, as I've had to do with my other daughters, is the stabilizers are going to have to come off. Parents at church this morning, you've been there, right? The stabilizers come off. And then 
your son or your daughter as they're learning to ride unaided with stabilizers become a hazard to everybody around them. They're wobbling all over the place. And you want to help them get used to riding and find balance and be able to ride their bike on two wheels. And I remember teaching my my older girls how to ride without stabilizers. And I'd run alongside them and I'd hold onto the handlebar and hold their little hand on the handlebars. And I'd grab the seat or I'd hold their back and I'd kind of keep them stable. But the more I did it, the more they relied on me keeping them upright and stable. And then I decided, well, this isn't going anywhere. And I, I copped on to the fact that I could just hold their seat at the back and I could run alongside them just a little behind them and I could hold the seat so that if they were going to wobble and tumble, that I could step in and prevent it. But they, they didn't know that I was really there. So sometimes it was, I don't want to ride this stupid bike because it seemed too scary. It seemed like because I was less obvious that I had abandoned them, that I had left them stranded. But no, in love, I was prepared to let them take some tumbles because I knew that when they learned to ride with two wheels, amazing adventures lay before them. Because then we could go on epic bike rides together. They'd watch me ride my mountain bike off steps and down little trails. And I knew that one day they'd get to join me in that. But they had to learn to ride without stabilizers. The truth is, if we can't see God in our situation right now, and we can't feel his hands in our life, we may feel scared, we may feel angry, we may feel helpless. We may just want to give up altogether. Pete Ward writes about this in his book, God on Mute, which is a great book. And he says these words, The Bible leaves us in no doubt at all that when God is silent, he's not absent from his people, even if that's the way it feels. Sometimes God removes the stabilizers from our bicycle and his hands from our frightened lives to draw us into a deeper relationship with him. He helps us to develop a mature faith. He's not left to strand us, even stranded, even if he seems less obvious in our lives. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says this, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. I think this is an encouragement we need to hear and hear again. God is with us. But I know that's easy to say. It's much harder to live. So I was thinking about this week, I discovered these words. I read them on a blog. I want to share them with you because they were encouragement to me. Because while there's always someone else who suffers more, it still doesn't, doesn't minimize the mountain that towers over you. It's real, it's scary, it's confusing.
What do we do? Three words. Keep showing up. Keep showing up. These three words are the most important thing we can do. You may not have the song to sing or even the voice to sing. You may not have the strength to raise your hands. You may not have the mental clarity to articulate your theology of suffering. But there's one thing you can do. Keep showing up. Approach the throne of grace every day, multiple times a day. Show up in the presence of God. Keep coming closer. Run harder. You don't have to possess the right words. God can handle your silence. You don't have to understand. God can handle your confusion. You don't have to repress your messy emotions. God wants it all. Your enemy's goal is for you to withdraw from his presence, to believe the lie that he's forsaken you. He wants you. He loves you. He doesn't just love the perfect you or the proper way to respond to this situation you. Just come. He wants to weep with you, enjoy you, identify with you, and be with you. He has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. When circumstances scream otherwise, believe the truth. Believe, believe, believe. He is with you. You can worship God at all times because God is with us. And we can worship God at all times because God has freed us. God has freed us. Our friend Alan was visiting with us this weekend. Um, and uh, I was reminded of a story. I was thinking about it last night. Um, an event that happened that involved our, our good friend Alan. And uh, I'd taken our young people for a week to Scotland for a residential in a church that I was working in at that time. And we had an amazing, amazing time with these teenagers in the Scottish borders. But at residentials, one of the things that always happens at some point is the prank start. And there were some great pranks. There were sleeping bags that had been sewn, closed. And, um, but the, the, the biggest prank, I think, was my brainchild. And uh, it involved my friends Alan's boots. Because the girls had been playing some pranks on the guys. So... I sent the guys to the girls' chalet and they came back with Alan's boots. And I filled them with water and I put them in the freezer and froze them solid. And I know what you're thinking, Fitzroy. Too far, Paul. Too far. Too far. And yeah, it, 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 it did go too far, but there was a lot of other things that preceded it. And uh, anyway, when they were deep frozen, um, we, we sent the guys over to the chalet with the boots and a little message. This is in case you get cold feet. And uh, Alan was not amused. And the guys come back and they're like, she's mad. She's mad. We've destroyed her boots. I'm like, well, we'll buy her new boots, but we've got to go talk to her. So I went over to the, the chalet and, and Alan's there. And I'm like, Alan, are you okay? Have we really upset you? And she was smiling. She was smiling at me and smiling at the guys. And she said, yes, this, this is just too far. I said, Alan, are you really upset? Because you're smiling. And then she said these words. I've never forgotten. She said, I might be smiling on the outside, 
but I'm not smiling on the inside. You ever felt that? Ever said that? It's great. And it's a great lesson, I think, because what's going on inside our hearts and minds can be different often than our actions. And in this way, we can be captive to some difficult situation, but still be aware on the inside of a whole other reality. And in this regard, we can be aware that we're free. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, God's word says, God is my helper, what can man do to me? I think Paul and Silas understood that. They understood that you could put our bodies in prison, but you can't put our hearts in prison. Whatever outward circumstances are going on, it won't change what's going on in here. There's nothing that can separate you from God's love. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't, life can't. The angels can't and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we're high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when he has set us free with a love like that, we are free indeed. And... The last big idea is that we can worship God at all times because God is working. God is working. You see, our trials can be a megaphone for our worship. Because when you worship God and your life is great, people will ignore you. But when you worship God, when your life is challenging and difficult... People will listen. And here in Acts chapter 16, people listen. The jailer listened. And look what happened to him. Verses 29 to 34. There's this violent earthquake. Paul and all these prisoners are there. Paul and Silas are singing praise. They're they're worshiping God in the prison cell. And all the prisoners are there listening to them. They're all present. When this earthquake hits, none of them escape. The jailer runs in. He's about to throw himself in his sword because he's responsible for all of these. And Paul says, don't. We're all here. We're all here. And then his question is, what must I do to be saved? And Paul points the jailer to salvation in Christ. Verse 25, I think, is a big deal here in this passage. These other prisoners were willing to stay awake to listen to these strange men who were singing to God while they were locked in a cell. I think Paul and Silas understood something that Corey Ten Boom once said. There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. There's no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. We don't know the result of what happened after this evening. We know a little. But no one knows how the jailer's story affected his friends and their time. But we do know 
that a little later, Paul wrote a letter to the Philippian believers, to a little church there. That all started because God was working, even in the midst of very challenging and difficult circumstances. My friend, Benjamin Francis, is from India. And he works with a ministry there called Big Life. And he visited with us a few years ago. and He was telling us some stories about his ministry. And he shared a story about one of his co-workers, a man named Tapan. This is Tapan. Tapan had come to faith. He and his wife had both come to faith in Jesus. And uh, in February 2007, he was part of a ministry team in another village, a medical ministry team. He was serving in that village when he got a message that he had to come home right away because there was something wrong with his wife. So he gets on a train and he makes a very, very long journey home. And he gets off the train and he walks down the road. But people don't look at him. People avoid his gaze. And when he gets close to his house, he notices that something's hanging from a rope in a tree. And he looks up. And to his horror, he sees it's his wife who's hanging in that tree. She'd been murdered. See, what had happened was that she all night had been setting up writing little tracks, little gospel tracks. And she'd been going down to the market and she'd been handing them out. And she'd been witnessing to people. But her family... Her family couldn't stand it. Tapan and his wider family, they just couldn't accept it. So they had conspired together and murdered Tapan's wife. I asked my friend Benjamin Francis, I said, Benjamin, what did, what did he say? He said, I cried out to God to help me out of this. I begged him to help me understand why my wife had to die. But I could not forsake my Lord because he promised never to forsake me. So I carried on proclaiming Christ and I waited for them to kill me too. That's inspiring to me. And as Stepan continued to live out his faith, trusting in God in the midst of this horrific event. Villagers would come to him and they, would, they said to him that they could see that he had real faith in God and that God was powerful and God protected him and some of them wanted to know more about God. And many of them started to respond to the gospel. And I asked Benjamin Francis, how did he feel about the people who did this terrible thing to him, to his wife, to his family, his own family members? And here were Tapan's words. He said, with Christ, we have the victory. My mother used to worship many gods. Now she worships Jesus. Twenty others of my family came to faith including those who killed my wife. I baptized them with my own hands. 
This is Tapan sharing the gospel just a couple of months after he lost his wife. It's an incredible story of inspiring faith. God was working, even in the midst of such heartbreak and trauma. The truth is, in our lives, God's always working, but we don't understand the bigger picture of what's going on. We see the problems, we don't see what God might be doing in the midst of the problems. We have to learn to pay attention. And the truth is, some things are so bad and so difficult that we can't wait to get through them. Other times, things are so wonderful and so attractive, we can't wait to get to them. And we can miss what's happening in the moment. We've got to learn to pay attention to what God's doing in the moment, even if we don't understand it completely. God is working for our good. Good book, good job, goodbye, good friend. We use that word a lot. Whatever is pleasant, whatever is pleasurable is good. But we seldom see on pleasant events, hardships, upset plans as good. But I think Acts chapter 16 and Romans 8 helps us rethink that word. We don't just endure trouble and hardship. Rather, we acknowledge that even in the midst of difficult circumstances, God manages our lives for good. Life will contain sorrow. It will contain suffering. God might sometimes seem less obvious. Some experiences will be downright tragic. But God does guarantee that he will do good things through those tough times. See, Charles Spurgeon said, When you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. We can worship God at all times because God is unchanging. We can worship God when it's under fire because God is with us. We can worship God because God has freed us. And we can worship God because God is always working. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks for your word to us this morning. Thanks for this encouragement that you're at work, that you never leave us, you never abandon us, you never let us go. Thanks for reminding us that even when it's tough and it's hard, we're not on our own. And that you will never let go. Help us to keep showing up. Help us to trust you. And would you work all things together for good. Amen. Let's respond with our worship.